0: Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 11th, 2022, and my guest is author and economist Arnold Kling. Arnold has a very nice Substack account called In My Tribe. This is his 18th appearance on EconTalk. He was last here in October of 2021 <laughs> talking about reforming government. Arnold, welcome back to EconTalk.
1: Thanks. I'm chasing Mike Munger, I think.
0: Yeah, you're, we all are by definition. <laughs> Uh you're definitely in the top five. You might be two or three. I can't I don't know exactly where you are, but um okay Mike might be untouchable. We'll see yeah uh, our topic for today is a number of recent developments in the tech world. Uh, I want to start with talking about Twitter. uh what are your thoughts on? on Elon Musk's acquisition and its significance in general for social media, that he's taken a very, it appears more of a hands-off approach than Twitter uh, had before he took over in terms Um, of what's allowed to be said and not said, et cetera.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, (laughs) this issue of content moderation is a very interesting problem. I think it would be an interesting problem in the abstract Right, because you can make two types of errors. You can allow content on that you really shouldn't, uh, or you can ban stuff or downweight stuff that you, you know, that you're wrongly banning or downweighting. I don't know how to <laughs> avoid you know that dilemma. That you're you're going to make mistakes either way. What's weird about it? At this point in history, is it's you know being done in the context of you know there's at least one group of people who are just very determined you know to have certain content banned and they think it ought to be banned. Um, so the free speech culture uh, has been on the decline and has. You know the phrase "free speech" itself, uh, which used to be you know kind of automatically, you know, a positive thing, a motherhood and apple pie thing, uh, is being questioned really for the first time in my lifetime. So it's a a weird time to try to be um, uh, try to deal with that dile- the dilemma.
0: Do you think of this as a free speech issue? I mean, there are sort of two things that I think are important on Twitter that are, you know, in the conversation. One is so-called hate speech or um, let's just call it ugliness. Uh, And the second is medical opinions that some people thought shouldn't be uh, promulgated. And in real freedom of speech, the government does not crack down on either of those. Um, but on a private platform like Twitter, how do you think about that? Do you think of it as it's a very unusual private platform, obviously?
1: Yeah, well, I think the latest revelations uh, are portrayed as showing uh, pretty close to collusion between government and Twitter. And that. Um, so that, that I think brings the whole free speech issue right back into the into play. Um, as far as uh, you know, the a private entity—I don't know—we uh, it's a it's a great attempt by libertarians to create a distinction. But nowadays, I mean, let's say are universities private entities? I mean if they're if they're getting government funding. Um so um I don't know that we can I, I think I think in terms of a free speech culture that people have to um believe that the mere expression of opinion is not a threat, it's not violence. Um and uh, the term hate speech is something that I don't think should be thrown around uh, very much, if at all. So, you know, I'm one of these people. Are, but we're both Jewish. I, you know, if somebody wants to deny the Holocaust, go ahead. In my view, my, you know, uh, the the right answer isn't to ban them from saying it. It's to pre- present evidence that reasonable people would agree supports the view that you shouldn't deny the holocaust
0: i mean i i agree with that i think that what's interesting to me is that musk is musk sees this at least he says so who knows what he really thinks but in his tweets he seems to see freedom of speech as an important value for twitter um you might view you know, used to be like you said as a libertarian Well, it's different. It's a private platform. It's not a government project. They can do whatever they want. They can ban people. We could have a left-wing Twitter and a right-wing Twitter and some other kind of Twitter. The challenge, of course, is that there's really only one Twitter. And it's very hard to have a second or third Twitter. Um, As
1: people on the left are discovering, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were hoping they could they could leave you know leave musk in the dust and that's just not so easy to do
0: doesn't seem to be happening yeah do you have any forecasts on what what's going to happen I mean the, the what I found entertaining is that you know in the first days of musk's tenure he um he proposed this eight eight dollar blue check and uh was spent with a firestorm of both criticism and Disdain, disdain that this could possibly be a good idea. It was obviously a mistake. And this view was propagated on Twitter without any knowledge of what it was actually going to be, right? There was no, it wasn't clear what the the actual programming had in mind was, but people were so sure that he was an idiot. And I've mentioned this before. I foolishly um, said I thought he has some skin in the game. $44 billion would seem to be. Encourage him to think carefully about what he does. And of course, if it turns out to be a mistake, he can change it, which he appears to have done, but you know, I think it's too early to tell. But um he's free to do whatever he wants. He owns it. And yeah. and the question is whether, you know, is that good or bad, given that we now have these silos of social media owned by powerful, somewhat uh intriguing Entrepreneurs, right? It's a very um, it's a very interesting time, but I don't think I don't think we have a very clear way to think about it. Yeah, I,
1: I feel more on solid ground myself when I talk about sort of the economics of trying to support social media. So if you want to switch over to that, I'd be
0: uh, yeah, happy it, to. You had a, you had a post on your Substack uh, where you gave. Elon, some free advice. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, a problem that's been acu- very acute in the internet, but actually precedes it, is a problem that a lot of uh, things that you want to sell don't have the standard economic textbook. Uh, it's called a U-shaped average cost curve where uh, you produce output up to a certain quantity and the cost, average cost is declining. And then you get beyond that point and average cost is increasing. Um, and so the, <laughs> the solution to that in most cases, the optimum is to set price equal to marginal cost. And define that marginal.
0: Um, what's marginal cost in that?
1: It's the cost of the next unit of producing the next unit.
0: And in that so, U-shaped example, the cost of the next unit might be rising because you have to to produce more and more. You're going to have to draw resources into your firm that are more and more expensive as you have to. Let's say you have to. You need more land for some agricultural aspect or some yeah. project. <laughs> project and and. The land that's available is scarcer and more valuable than the early land that you used. And therefore, it's going to get more and more expensive to expand. And so price are going to have to rise as the business gets bigger.
1: Yeah. As uh, somebody once put it, uh, you know, you can't grow all the world's wheat in a single teapot. Um, and, you know, so if you have to, like you say, if you have to expand land at some point, the cost of, growing weed is going to be increasing. The the other type of good has very, it's it's often called a natural monopoly. It has a very high fixed cost and low marginal cost. So a classic pre-internet example would be a pharmaceutical, where let's say you can produce a pill for pennies, but the fixed cost of getting it developed and tested might be hundreds of millions of dollars. So if you price it at the marginal cost of pennies, you'll never recover the fixed cost. And that problem is very widespread on the Internet because the cost of distribution is approximately zero. Cost of copying is approximately zero. So you've got a lot of goods. Maybe the standard circumstance on the Internet is for there to be high Fixed cost and low marginal costs, and that's very much true of these social media outfits. In fact, it, it, it's even more extreme than that because, in some sense, the value, the cost of an additional user is negative. You want to have more and more users if you're Facebook. Um, so, um, you know, you just you can't. Um, you can't get away with charging a marginal cost of zero or negative and, and recover the fix the high fixed cost of developing uh, Facebook or Twitter
0: and of course those <laughs> those platforms have used advertising as their way of dealing with that right so right anyway, and that's only
1: one mechanism. Uh, so I go back to the what I, I guess you call a classic book, although you know something that comes out around nineteen ninety-nine or two thousand. Can you call it classic? Uh Information Rules by Hal Varian and Carl Shapiro. Uh and they basic they point out sort of all the ways that you can support something with you know high fixed costs, low marginal cost. Advertising is just one of them. Uh, the one that I find most interesting, and in, because in, you observe it in so many places, in fact, so many places that I have this catchphrase, "Price discrimination explains everything." That uh, we observe um, price discrimination, and for something like Twitter, I think that's a very natural thing. So, you know, he he wanted to charge eight dollars for the blue a month for the blue check. I would almost guarantee you that he can charge eight dollars a month for something because you know Twitter is a bunch a bundle of things and it 's very valuable to some people and you can find some bundle of privileges that people will pay for um, My initial guess was ha- you know having let 's say more than a thousand followers plus the ability to, to direct message people. You know, so, there's some bundle of of rights and privileges that people would pay more for, and yet you still can keep the casual user on because you want to do that. Their marginal cost is of keeping them on is zero or even negative. You want them on, so you want to keep the casual user and charge something to the user who has uh, what we call inelastic demand. That is, they're going to, you know, they're going to be willing to pay. And so you want to charge more for the people who are willing to pay. And um, I'm I'm, I'm confident that if if they were to experiment and keep trying, they could find a way to price discriminate and uh, make the service profitable.
0: Well, you can't be sure of the profitability. We certainly get more revenue maybe than they're getting now. Um, You know, we fired a bunch of people, I think, as far as we know. and. I thought it was a little strange. You know, people said, hey, Twitter still works. So obviously they were doing nothing. I, I don't think that follows. Uh, yeah,
1: I, I, my understanding is that the advertising model on Twitter is, you know, unlike something like Google AdWords where, you know, it's a turnkey thing. You you go on to Google, you say, I want to buy, you know, a thousand impressions of the word, you know, Arnold Kling or AP statistics or whatever I f- you know, might feel like. Buying the the AdWords for um, that the on Twitter because it's not a mass audience where you can easily identify uh, your target you um, the the campaign the ad campaign actually has to be designed professionally really by the help of people from twitter so some of these people and maybe they weren't fired or maybe they were uh were involved in um designing ad campaigns and so they were revenue producers
0: but i find the you know everyone noted this before elon musk bought it that the the role of advertising on twitter is so ineffectual um yeah you know i I get the occasional promoted, is how it's described. Post promoted tweet or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost never of interest to me. I never click through. (laughs) I don't.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know whether. Yeah, I've I've never liked the advertising model on the internet in general. Um, You know, I I think, uh, you know, there there are better ways to uh, to try to support. Content, but somehow the advertising model became the standard thing. Um, but I think I, 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 my view is that you know, you know, Google gets X percent of of advertising, Facebook gets Y percent, and everybody else collectively is fighting for you know one minus X minus Y percent, and that's that's not going to you know.
0: The, you really shouldn't try to play that game. You should try to find some other revenue model. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what Musk does. I, You know, I see glimmers throughout Twitter of, of innovation. Uh, I was struck by, and again, I'm not going to judge whether previous ex-employees were productive or not, but um, it was a pretty static platform. <laughs> there wasn't a lot going on there. Um, and I see more innovation in the Months that Musk has owned it than than before, so we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to um, FTX, the another um, recent exciting event on in the tech world. Yeah. The um, the bizarre aftermath of the collapse of FTX uh, has been Sam Bankman Freed, the founder doing the rounds of various, um, I mean, he did did an interview with the New York Times. He did a late (laughs) night email exchange with a reporter that um, seems to, was was surprisingly um, honest. Uh, First, what happened as best we know? What do you think happened there? What what is FTX? What happened to it, as best we know?
1: Okay. As best we know. It, okay. So let me let me take a little bit of a step back. So um, everyone should understand that I have never been a crypto optimist, and one of my lines is that the I think the worst thing that happened to crypto was the speculative boom in Bitcoin and and other currencies because. That gives people the impression that the use case for crypto is, um, um, you know, wild speculation, and that's you know you don't want that to be your primary. Yeah, you know, there are other use cases that that seem like there'd be more promising, you know, more, you know, that you'd want to.
0: Build your reputation
1: on, yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, uh, just to keep digressing a little bit, I think the the interesting use cases are to uh, get around badly managed financial systems slash regulations. So if you're in Argentina and and let's and, and I'm your your relative living in America, and I want to send money to you. Argentina might, if I do it above board, Argentina might set an artificial official exchange rate, let's say of two pesos to the dollar, when it really should be five pesos to the dollar, like in in a free market. So if I send you a remittance. Uh, and do it above board. I'm sacrificing, you know, over half of the of the value by transacting at this artificial official exchange rate. So, uh, you know, in that case, Bitcoin becomes, you know, keeping keeping it your remittance outside of the view of the uh, official government, but keeping it with something that can retain more of its value. You know, that's a real use case. So remittances are a real use case. Mm. The other is if you have a banking system that just doesn't work. So I think suppose the the example that I've read supposedly of this is Vietnam where um you know, you just if you put your money in your bank, that's actually riskier than you know putting it in in crypto. Uh and that that could either be because the banks are poorly regulated or because the government doesn't stop inflation or, or what have you so that's kind of a, another use case but and this gets to my view of it is that all the all these use cases are somewhat adjacent to criminal activity um, that is that you're you're getting out of the regulated world, out of the formal world, into the informal world, into the underground economy. Uh, so so you're lying do- down with dogs, so to speak. And you're, and you're probably going to wake up with fleas. Um, maybe that's wrong. Um, anyway, that's but to get at the revenge. So, but, but, but but yeah, go ahead.
0: No, go ahead. Finish up.
1: No, you finished.
0: So we had a recent. Um episode with devin Zugel on the use of crypto yeah. in Venezuela, which is crazy um and then Mark Andreessen made this point that you know crypto is important because for systems that don't have organized for countries that don't have good banking systems or reliable banking systems it's very it's important but and and I think I've remarked on this program you know my daughter is is in London and if i want to send her money it's a remarkably expensive um and and un, and not easy to do um expensive meaning there's a big chunk taken out by paypal or whoever it is who's um, you know they'll say they don't yeah. charge a fee but then they, they get you on the exchange rate that they use yeah right uh, which i just despise and that the, the dream is that you know crypto is this relatively frictionless <laughs> Um, digital currency yeah, transfer. Well, I, but if my daughter can't do anything with it, it's not a very good system. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I, I think, it,
1: you know, if the point is that if the financial system's working well, it it will at some point figure out an efficient way to do, you know, cross border money transfers. Uh, you know there's just there's incentive to do that. you can use computers you don't have to use computers in the really complex uh resource intensive way that bitcoin uses it um so anyway back to ftX uh if you know one of the challenges that crypto faces to you know, for its you know to do legitimate use cases like you know cross border between the u s and the u k um is that uh it's not easy to learn how to use you know there are all these stories about people you know losing track of their key so that they've you know, effectively lost their crypto um, I know people who you know say that they're very technically competent but cannot you know don't feel competent to actually own their own crypto they want so this reminds me of the state of the uh the world wide web around 1994 when what was holding back mass adoption was that it was very hard for an individual to figure out how to get uh get the internet protocols onto their computer so um the mass adoption problem tends to be solved unfortunately from my idealistic point of view by centralized large centralized entities so you know as the internet became hard to search you know google's kind of takes over as people became interested in this social media phenomenon facebook takes over um the the dream as of the early 1990s was that uh because the internet structurally was very decentralized you know just in terms of the underlying technology that would that the um kind of social systems and economic systems that would be built on top of the internet would be equally decentralized and we would all be in this kind of sort of libertarian utopia uh, of a de- you know, decentralized system. Well, that idealistic dream has come back with crypto. But my my experience leads me to believe that you'll need these centralized entities to produce. You know that 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 will be a necessary condition for mass adoption and for overall efficiency. So, in crypto, what that means is. Third parties like exchanges become very important, and that's what kind of FTX was supposedly positioned as as uh, an exchange. An exchange can make money either you know it it, you know it can make money by um, charging a fee, like you say. You know, a bank can charge a fee for trading you know dollars for pounds. and or, or can make money on what's called a dealer spread, which is again, you know, like uh, charging you one exchange rate to go from dollars to pounds, and a different exchange rate to go from pounds to dollars, so that uh, it, it in effect makes a profit on both sides of the transaction. So that's how an exchange should work. But in the world of crypto. I guess these exchanges are holding your crypto. Uh, they're not just sort of instantly making a transaction between these two. Uh, maybe they should. Maybe there are exchanges that do that, that they don't really hold on to it. But uh, FTX was doing that. So in that sense, it's tr- it's acting like a bank, right? I've got my, you know, supposedly I've got my uh Cryptocurrency being stored there, and I can take it out anytime I want. Uh, but when you're running a bank, there's always the possibility that you'll uh, loot the bank doing whatever. You, could. in this case, they had the he had like a, over a hundred different entities that he was, uh, you know, the owner of or founder of. One of them being this Alameda uh, firm. And as far as we can tell, he took a lot of people's money that they'd put into the FTX exchange and uh kind of did a kind of a round trip trade with Alameda that somehow made both of them seem uh, seem to have better balance sheets than they really had and somewhere in this process, either Alameda or FTX <laughs> caused uh, a lot of this money to disappear and sort of could be bad investments, maybe, you know, things that, you know, maybe consumption by uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and his cronies, you know who, know, who knows where the money went. It's mysterious how how so much money could kind of disappear. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't begin to tell you how it ac- actually happened, and I'm not sure at this point anyone can.
0: I don't think I don't think we know at this point. Uh, as you said before we started recording, it could be fraud. It could be incompetence. The part that's entertaining about it is, um...
1: yeah, uh, you know, when you when you mentioned all his, you know, his, you know, media tour. Some of that could be that he's just addicted to that. You know, he he was a great he he was superb at hyping himself in media terms or in some sense he's preparing to plead insanity like you know who would be who would be crazy enough to give a media tour if people are suspecting you of fraud so i can't you know i must be crazy so you know go easy on me
0: and just as an aside he is of course the funder of a number of effective altruism projects he is on paper at least in his public pronouncements a um, utilitarian par excellence. And Eric Hall, um, past Econ Talk guest, has written about that quite eloquently. We'll put some links up to his essays on this. I don't know whether... Um, I you know, I always hated that. I mean,
1: I think months ago, the, the effective altruism stuff that he was pushing. I thought that that was... You know, that's... Committing the, the sin of <clears throat> believing that you know what's you know how to fix the world you know it's the same sin that a uh, that a politician you know a, an authoritarian politician commits of saying you know my central planning is superior to the market's trial and error it's really the the same thing and I I kind of called him out on that months ago said you know didn't just didn't like the guy for that reason.
0: And then the you know in his interviews he's he's hinted at the possibility that it was just a ruse to gain yeah. credibility. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, he he
1: does seem like a very disturbed individual and but somehow he's disturbed in such a way that he um appeals personally to a lot of people. Uh and the other th- in in addition to his to sort of his you know personal uh quote unquote charisma, he threw a lot of money around it, uh, to people in the media in order to get good publicity, including like supporting their publications, you know, giving them you know like a quarter of their funding or what have you. Uh and you don't know to what extent he bribed individual journalists. The potential for conspiracy theories here, I think, is just huge. I mean, I think this is. Well, again, we don't know to what extent it was deliberate fraud. Um, This guy, uh, I think it's Mark Komodes, who called out FTX back in October. Uh, just said it's you know a bunch of interns running around trying to do an exchange. They have no more business, run, you know. They they shouldn't be running a lemonade stand, much less an exchange. Was one of his lines. He thinks that one of the uh, main attorneys for Bankman-Fried was really running the whole show, and you know, you know, well. You know so he get the picture that that he was kind of using bankman freed as this front man while he could uh where he was deliberately pulling off fraud so there's all these cons- potential conspiracy theories of so the fact that he gave so much money to politicians um and then you know was invited to weigh in on regulation um and you know, he's been invited to testify in front of Congress. Usually, when somebody like that is invited to testify in front of Congress, it's the chance for the congressman to get to show up on TV. You know, yelling at the guy. Who knows? Maybe these are all people he's paid for, and he's going to be treated well. You know, it's. Uh, I, I think it's sort of the. You know, I don't have a specific conspiracy theory, but. I guarantee you, they're going to be all you know. There are a lot of going to be a lot of plausible conspiracy theories coming out of this.
0: Well, I don't find it surprising that a um, someone like Sam Bankman-Fried gets a lot of attention in the media. He's so outside the box; the media loves that. (laughs) He's good. He makes for good copy. Uh, He appears to be so generous, you know, totally unique and unlike other people and the rules of the game don't apply to him and he's doing this pioneering thing and Elon Musk has some of the same you know, charisma surrounding yeah. him and these kind of people do generate an immense amount of media attention um, we could mention Elizabeth Holmes, another example she was um, somebody who she's a- go ahead
1: yeah she's on the cover of lots of magazines and Clearly charmed, you know, Henry Kissinger and, you know, other uh, dignitaries. I think it was Kissinger was one of the people on her board. I hope I'm not uh, maligning him.
0: Um, so the part that you wrote about, which we haven't gotten to yet, that's all nice background. part you wrote about, which I thought was fascinating, was the comparing Sam Bankman-Fried to Jeff Bezos and how your view of the two uh, changed and what it tells us about the role of venture capital uh, versus corporate innovation within a venture capital world, innovation within a corporate world. Yeah.
1: So, you know, if you'd looked at the very start, uh, I would have been skeptical, equally skeptical of Jeff Bezos as an entrepreneur and Sam Bankman fried as an entrepreneur, you know, as they start out they're doing wildly ambitious things they're, they've got a lot of personal charisma and you can't believe they know what they're doing like my line on amazon is you know as they were getting going is okay so what amazon ha- so what walmart has to do with to compete with amazon is develop a website what amazon has to do to compete with walmart is develop a whole logistic system for international shipping of goods and so on so who's going to win well it was clearly walmart i'm all they have to is develop a website and they're you know uh, and that that didn't turn out to be the case at all uh so it turned out that jeff bezos was uh had tremendous substantive skill i think amazing substantive skill as a business leader i mean they're there're always people who will or you know, denigrate anybody but to me he's like the most you know the most amazing business leader you could you'd find uh and sam bagman fried turned out to be a total fraud or a total total incompetent one or, or some combination of those two um you know uh, and if you're a venture capitalist uh it's probably hard to tell them apart at the beginning. Um, you know, I mean, clearly there there would be people who would, but uh, with the ambition of venture capitalist, you know, once described it as, you know, I don't, well, I'm not going for singles and doubles. I don't want, I don't, you know, what I want is not just even a home run, but a home run that goes outside the stadium and rolls down the street, you know, just, you know, the the vet the you know for an ordinary investor like you or me you know if we're going to put money into a particular stock which we typically don't typical buy index funds but if we we're going to do that sort of we'd say well we, i really want to avoid losing everything uh and you know the the upside doesn't have to be unlimited and with the venture capitalists it's the other way around oh yeah i lose everything on on a lot of my investments but uh every once in a while i i hit the jackpot um and that kind of mentality means you w- want to back a founder who has you know ridiculously high ambitions uh, and who you know who you know, has very grandiose visions, and so as they're starting out, Sam Bankman-Fried has a grandiose vision, or he he promulgates one, and Jeff Bezos gives you a grandiose vision, and you know which one you know it's, it seems like you should back both of them. And in fact, I think what a lot of venture capitalists feel is like they. You know, if they've been around a long time is, you know, they, if they missed Amazon, that's the kind of error they don't want to make again. Whereas betting on Sam Bankman Freed is like, okay, made that mistake, lost some money, happens all the time. So it's, it's a very different perspective than what you and I would have looking at an individual investment.
0: It reminds me of Rory Sutherland's observation here on Econ he Talk when he said <laughs> I thought this was very profound. If you ask a person to hire ten people, it's a very different phenomenon than asking ten people to hire one within your within a corporation. So you have a uh-huh. you have a corporation and, right. and you ask ten people to each recommend somebody. Well, they have to recommend somebody safe. <laughs> Can't take yeah. a chance. It's a high risk. It would be foolish. But if you can hire 10 people, you might be happy to hire um, – you might be happy with an cr- outcome where two of them thrive and are spectacular hires. And eight of them are just so-so or even mediocre or bad.
1: Um. So, yeah, there's, a, there's just a different incentive and a different kind of experience base that venture capitalists are dealing with. Um, so, But your point, which is uh, not unrelated so, – Yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, so it's susceptible to a charismatic goofball (laughs) uh, in a way that that the rest of us wouldn't be.
0: But your other insight is that within a corporation, there's a a vetocracy, a power of veto that plays a role. Explain that.
1: Um, Yeah, basically, if you're in middle management and you propose some, uh, you know, very potentially spectacular project for your company. Um, you're going to have to sit in on sitting in meetings, and you know there there are going to be ten people in the room, and if one of them says this won't fly, that's it, you're done. And that's actually rational from the corporation's point of view because as a middle manager, you have very little skin in the game. Suppose your project's going to cost twenty million dollars you know the upside is you know 500 million dollars or a billion dollars worth of value uh you're not going to get very much of that upside on the other hand if the corporation loses the 20 million you're going to lose zero uh of the downside uh so you don't have much skin in the game when when you're playing with the corporation's money and so a corporation that doesn't set up a bureaucracy that's skeptical of ideas that come from middle management is just going to end up um, Throwing money at lots of projects that it can't, uh, that don't turn out well, and just you know squanders its money. So, a vitocracy, in short, is a rational uh, thing to have. Uh, But that's so that's why when you're you know innovations typically start out outside of big corporations because it's just rational for them to um, not give. not approved projects for people who don't really have that much skin in the game.
0: And as you point out, venture capital, it's the opposite, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just go, you you need the upside and you're um, right. Um, and the founder does have some, a lot of skin in the game typically. Uh,
0: okay. Let's move on to our last topic. Um, it's about a week old, maybe two weeks at this point. <laughs> it's just a little bit new, a little bit maybe a little bit yeah. brash to to talk about it. But that's uh, ChatGPT. It's a project of <laughs> right. OpenAI. OpenAI. OpenAI is a um, project. The CEO is Sam Altman, who has is a past EconTalk guest when he was the head of the Y Combinator, which is an incubator for new ideas. Um, a lot of people have been blown away by ChatGPT. I would think I'm one of those. Maybe you are less excited about it. Um, but what it is is a place where you enter a query or a comment or a question, and it it talks back to you. It goes back to the to me the the oldest attempts to have AI uh, help people. You know, I'm feeling sad today. Oh, what are you sad about? Yeah. Well, having... yeah, Eli-
1: yeah, that's Eliza right yeah. the uh, the artificial psychiatrist. Right.
0: So um, ChatGPT has that but it also does some rather extraordinary things which we'll we'll talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess
1: I think right now it's at the level of a uh, an undergraduate BS artist who hasn't studied enough for the test. Um, now Computer I get you a
0: long way, Arnold. In a lot of situations,
1: <laughs> right? Uh, um, so I think what's impressive, you know, what what strikes people is that it can sound like a human being, and you can even have it imitate a particular human being. Like if the, if if somebody has a lot of content out there, whether it's you know Shakespeare or Tyler Cowen or somebody, uh, it, 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 and you say right an essay about X in the style of Shakespeare or in the style of Tyler Cowen, it will imitate that. so it it has a great facility with putting together words. It's a great BS artist. Um, But a lot of its stuff it does is BS. One of the first things I did is I said, write an essay about Arnold Kling, economist. And I proceeded to tell a bunch of lies yeah. it said i was i said i was born in new york i was actually born in st louis it said i was born in 1960 It was actually 1954 so on it said i wrote the myth of the rational voter that's written by brian kaplan um you know and it just said this with a straight face like you know it, it along with some things that were true about me but that was it was just so and uh somebody else described they had it asked for an essay on Thomas Hobbes, and it came back with you know a, something that was a description of the philosophy of John Locke, which it attributed to Thomas Hobbes, even though Locke is you know di- different in some ways the opposite of Hobbes. So, um, so I get the sense you know that it it sort of looks for <coughs> connections related to the words that you. Include in your prompt, and then its real skill is assembling them into a a, uh, a good sounding narrative, a narrative that sounds like what it, what a human would put together. Um, yeah, it it may evolve into something different. There's this um, essay, long essay by Gary Marcus, who's a um, a real skeptic of the of the whole method of these sort of neural networks. So let me go back. This may be a weird thing, but when I was with Freddie Mac in about 1991, 92, 93, we were looking for ways to automate the underwriting process. We thought we could start to use computers to supplement or replace human underwriters. And the approach we first looked at was known as expert systems. And basically you, you, Would program a computer with a bunch of rules that mimicked what a human underwriter would use. And then at one point we heard a presentation on credit scoring, which operates, which which was kind of the an early version of big data uh, machine learning as we now do it, in that it just said, let's just look for correlations with default. Um, and this wasn't even default on mortgages; it was just default on you know, on credit cards and so on. And they found variables that uh, statistically were important that human underwriters weren't even paying attention to. Uh, one was credit capacity. Like if you have uh, you know th- thirty thousand dollars of unused credit, that is, you've got some you know credit cards with you know let's say three credit cards each with a uh, credit limit of $10,000 and you're not using any of them, that's a real strong sign that you're not going to default. Uh, conversely, uh, making a lot of inquiries, like if, you, if you've if you know, uh, applied for five credit cards in the last two weeks, that's a real red flag. Well, human underwriters never even knew that. Uh, the computers figured it out. So you know, long story short, the... Uh, <laughs> the statistical based or machine learning type, what we would now call machine learning approach to automating underwriting won out and the expert systems lost. And what's happened in AI, I think, has been something similar, but Gary Marcus claims that the you know these sort of purely, correlation oriented statistically oriented forms without any you know domain knowledge entering the picture uh we've reached their limit that they're they're not gonna you know his claim is they're not going to get a lot better and uh, you're going to have to you know bring in other other types of learning and again my experience would lead me to this, to believe it's very hard to integrate them actually it's very hard to integrate two different types of learning uh you know two very different methods without uh, one method hurting the other um, just like I think it's in chess it's become very hard to integrate like a human's decision with the computer's decision you know when the computers were first starting to get really good at chess. A human could spot a situation. Well, here's a situation where, uh, based on the layout of the board, the computer's going to make a mistake. So I'm going to override it. Uh, but then you reach, it reach the point where the, the the human override, on average, ends up worse than not overriding. Um, anyway, so it, it's very it's very hard to integrate two methods of you know two completely different methods of Learning and so we may <laughs> have reached a point or come close to reaching a point where the, the chat GPTs of the world don't get better. Um, That's a
0: little early to tell, it's about a week old. Yeah, it's a way, way <laughs> early, way <laughs> earlier. I'm uh, <laughs> so you're more bullish. Well, than I am. I'm more impressed with it at its current level. You know, a week and a half into it, um, I asked it something about Adam Smith and it said. You know, he wrote The Wealth of Nations, but you could also read Edwin Canin's, um book, An Inquiry into the Nature and Cause of the Wealth of Nations, which is uh, summarizes the ideas in Smith's book. Well, it doesn't, Canaan, I think was the editor or whatever, but just a total blunder like you're talking about. At the same time, somebody sent me, I don't know, I think part of the fascinating part of this, you can't tell whether any of these things are legitimate or not. They appear to be written by a person. In fact, it appears to be like there's somebody, you know, like um, in a back room writing these. Is really good at at, right. at uh, creating text, but somebody asked for me to opine or write about a sandwich, and it started talking about, you know, among other things, all of which were pretty good. The how a sandwich is a, an example of division of labor and specialization, which is something I, you know, talked about in Econ Talk. One of my favorite episodes, by the way, about Smith and Ricardo. We'll link to it if you haven't heard it. Please, um, please check it out. And I would also add, um, you should, since we're in the holiday season coming up, you should think about Econ Talk swag uh, for your gift giving uh, needs. So we'll put a link up to the Econ Talk swag store, which is at RussRoberts.info. We don't make any money on it. It just covers our costs. But it's a nice way for you to spread the word uh, about Egan Talk. But the part that oppresses me, yes, it's going to make mistakes about who thing is. It's not as reliable in many ways as Wikipedia or Google. But the part that's amazing about it is it's really good at, at writing in things where it's not having to think deep thoughts. So the example I'll give you is, I asked it to write an invitation to a party where I'm afraid the person won't come. It was a brilliant three or four paragraph uh, invitation. I did a couple of those. Um, I'm a pretty good email writer. I've helped a number of people. I'm sure you have too, where I've given them counsel on how to structure an email for a job interview or for an awkward situation this kind of puts our kind of that kind of skill out of business and it's a week old or two weeks old. So yeah. I I think and the obvious example that people are worried about are written assignments that and and the inability to distinguish plagiarism. Uh that might be good yeah. for education, by the way. Maybe we'll have fewer assignments that ask people to write up stuff they can find on the internet. But Yeah.
1: No, I think the impact of the the most immediate impact i can see is that it will create a big issue of um deception and of uh, detecting deception in terms of uh you know first of all content like you know the the biography of me that it put together uh, immediately raises the issue of you know you'd have to look through it to find out what's true and what's not. And then the issue of you know deception, self-deception of, you know, is the you know, is this who it says it is, right? So you, you know, uh if it gets really good at imitating Russ Roberts, uh could there be a hundred Russ Roberts tweets out there? Um that you know all, and only one of them really comes from you I mean that just that the ability to deceive uh, other people about or deceive people about who you are as a bot and and naturally the response is going to be to develop a bot that can detect tell the difference between a bot and a human so you've got this arm race going you've got the on the one hand the bot is trying to you know, superpass the Turing test and sort of convince you that it's a particular that it's a person, a particular person. And on the other hand, you you've got a bot that's trying to distinguish between the two because uh you know you, 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 the the human effort involved in detect determining the difference between a bot and a and a human is is too difficult. I mean that's I think why uh Elon Musk's uh, eight dollars to get the blue check didn 't work. It probably costs more than eight dollars a person to verify that uh, that the the person is who who they say they are so um, that that you know all of a sudden we 're going to have this arms race over something that wasn 't so much of an issue before of, you know, phony identity, either phony identity as a human or phony identity as a particular human. Uh, So people trying to achieve that or computers trying to achieve that, the ability to mimic a particular human being versus, you know, how do you detect and stop that? And the only way you can do that at scale is with with another bot. So that's just a a whole new arms race that uh, that I think is going to be the most immediate impact of these uh, open AI projects.
0: Yeah, I'm going to suggest that it used to be that you would see these outputs of these programs, you'd just laugh at them, there'd be a grammatical error, or there'd be a a goofy thing. Now, occasionally there'll be some like your <laughs> example of getting your birth birthday year wrong or where you were born, or misunderstanding something about you. But for this these sort of text writing, applications like invitations, emails, short paragraphs, uh, introductions. I don't think you'd be able to distinguish them between a human being and a bot. Um, you know, I get a the most primitive version of this is already in email, right? In Gmail, when I want to reply to someone, it gives me a couple suggestions. Yeah. Thanks. Great job. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Right? It's one word or phrase. Works for me. Works for me. Yeah. And, um, this is a whole new level, and and I don't notice when someone responds to me works for me that I don't go oh I bet that was an Amazon I bet that was a Gmail uh, response I just go okay it works for him and I move on and it's fine nothing's yeah. at stake there there's nothing wrong with getting that kind of help uh, there's nothing disturbing about it if it was in French you'd say well I'm surprised he speaks French I didn't know that <laughs> but these are just the daily things that that go on and I think. That piece of it is greatly, uh, could be greatly life-enhancing. You know, somebody mentioned to me, somebody, I read it, I forget where I read it, but, you know, somebody whose English was imperfect, they were trying to reply to a bunch of job interview questions or job interview requests, and they didn't know how to phrase the emails in English to sound normal. And this helped them, and it it, (coughs) it gave them access to things they wouldn't otherwise have gotten. Is that cheating? Yes, uh, sort of. Is it a bad thing? I think it's probably a good thing.
1: I don't know. Well, it depends, you know, if if on the job they're going to need to, <laughs> you know, talk fluently in English with people, it's probably a bad thing. Um, no, I, I mean, that's, that's going to be it. There are going to be use cases where it's okay and use cases where it's terrible. And uh, being able to separate the two is going to be really hard. Uh, that's... Um, no, but I do agree with you. It's 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 an amazing development. It's amazing how fast it is. Um, the other uh, week ago, I was in Austin and met this kid who you know probably started shaving six months ago and says, "I'm really into machine learning." I said, "Well, I wish I could buy shares in the guy." I mean, you know, it's it's clearly going to be the the big trend for uh, for a while. And uh, like one anecdote is there was somebody who uh, found a 16-question IQ test, and they gave it to the chat GPT, and he said it, it, it's, it scored about as much as a human who has an IQ of 100. And, you know, if computers, you know, my experience with computers is once they reach a certain point and they're on the up curve, yeah, it's not, not like they stop. So, you know, will it take less than six months for the thing to come back with an an IQ of 130? Probably. Um, So it's, uh, uh, watch this space. I'm sure I've said at least one thing discussing it that's going to look idiotic uh, a few months from now.
0: My guest today has been Arnold Klang. Arnold, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Okay, thanks.